0: Welcome to the Higher Ed Happy Hour podcast, brought to you by Unincorporated, a higher education agency committed to building awareness and growing enrollment for universities. This podcast provides deans, senior admin, and faculty with the tools, resources, and information they need to grow student interest, design branded content, and launch new programs and courses. In this episode, we'll be discussing how academics can find success and fulfillment in their careers. To help us explore the topic, Ian spoke with Dana Mitra about how faculty can improve equitable conditions within their university and contribute to staff retention and well-being. Dana is a professor of education policy studies at Pennsylvania State University, and she recently released a book entitled The Empowered Professor, Breaking the Unspoken Codes of Inequity in Academia.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Higher Ed Happy Hour. This is Ian from Unincorporated. And as the intro mentioned, I'm here with Dana Mitra, who is a professor of education policy studies at the Pennsylvania State University with a PhD in educational leadership from Stanford. Her latest book is titled, The Empowered Professor, Breaking the Unspoken Codes of Inequity in Academia. And as I've learned, she wrote this book after spending over a decade coaching academics on how to find success and fulfillment in their careers. Uh, Dana, I know in this book that you demonstrate how a coaching-focused stance toward faculty development can actually improve equitable conditions within the university and contribute to faculty retention and well-being, all of which I'm really hoping we can explore further in today's conversation. Dana, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: Absolutely. So first question, uh, we're going to dig right into this, but you talk about in the book how to uh, survive in academia and how this is a process of navigating unspoken rules while still maintaining one's own sense of integrity. Can you tell us a little bit more about how faculty members might explore these unspoken rules and not just survive, but possibly even thrive in this condition?
2: Absolutely. So a lot of the strategies and how to succeed are not necessarily in the faculty handbook, and there's a wide range of ways that people learn how to do a job. A lot of it is who you know and the information and support that you receive. And it's feeling comfortable to ask questions, but also to know who to ask those questions to. So there are the confidants, the folks that can really tell you what's really going on. It might be senior faculty. It also is often staff assistants who just know how things actually work versus the way they're stated in policy. So feeling comfortable in having that um, social capital, we would say, to be able to ask people questions who can answer your questions, feeling safe to do that, and also even knowing who those people are is an important part of figuring out how to navigate and find out the work that really needs to be done.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You, you mentioned this uh, idea of social capital, and maybe for those faculty members who haven't gained that social capital that's needed any advice there on in terms of building that social capital so that you do feel a bit more comfortable?
2: Yeah, so part of that is really identifying folks that you feel are safe um, and would that you feel comfortable asking questions to. Also, really taking up offers of welcome. If you ever want to grab a cup of coffee, say yes to all of those. I'm always surprised as a more senior faculty member the times that people don't take me up on the opportunity to to meet whenever I make that available and real and taking the time to get to know every person from the mail deliverer to the staff assistants to you know and they each serve a different role in terms of understanding an institution and being helpful, as well as just by, by coming to know people, you'll feel more a part of the community. It's really hard right now in this COVID environment where some folks have started a job where they've never met people in person. So, you know, the normal strategies might be show up to meetings early and leave late so you can have those informal conversations, stop by desks and introduce yourself. And now it might be more intentional whether it is logging onto a Zoom call earlier, but also having to really make the time to ask people if they have 15 minutes to have a phone conversation or, you know, these days I often ask, would you you like to go for a walk or um, if you're not safe to sit and have a cup of coffee, but you might have to really more intentionally build social capital and 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 ways to have connection with people who are you also building that with people who are who are new to academia like you but the senior folks who have been there for a long time
1: yeah i think that's uh, some really good actionable advice there i've heard in that answer that having some clear intentions set in Mm -hmm. place so just kind of being honest with yourself to those intentions, but then owning up to them, right? And putting the extra effort in that's required to build, you know, build relationships in, in any format. Uh, I love the question too. Hey, would you like to go for a short walk? I, I think walking meetings are um undervalued or underrated at least in in a lot of that networking that we do.
2: Let me circle back to the Zoom piece too yeah. in that um because we're on Zoom so often, I think we need to feel more comfortable stopping in asking questions and assuming that if you have that question, other folks do. And even mm-hmm. if you know that, to create space to make sure there's common understanding. So if this is something that you do know a lot about, to still make sure that all acronyms are explained, that everyone is on the same page, and that there's a lot of space for learning from one another and circling back in case people don't understand things, given that we don't have informal spaces anymore.
1: Yeah. That's true. Is there more, this kind of relates to the next question, but are there some assumptions or maybe more hurdles put in place for a faculty member, maybe because they're afraid of speaking up or afraid that they don't know all the acronyms or asking the, say, the the dumb question? Are, Are there more hurdles in that sense?
2: Absolutely. and so it may be your personality, whether you're shy or outgoing, but also certainly if you're um, somebody who's not in the majority in a space based on any any sort of identity factor that can feel a little bit more um, confusing or harder to to ask those questions. Mm-hmm. And so on the leadership side or side of where folks are the ones who are trying to create a context, it might involve not only just trying to be really thoughtful about what are we not saying, there, what's assumed information, but checking prior to anything that's really critical, having sounding boards in places to ask, does this make sense? What are we missing? Um, are we hearing all the voices in this conversation, um, especially in this time where communication is so hard and we've lost a lot of that connection? We need to really go out of our way to make sure that we're circling back to people and that there's that those lines of communication. I think without the meetings that we normally have, And Zoom being a difficult space, we're much more likely as leaders to just reach out to one person to solve a problem than to maybe bring something up that normally would have happened in a bigger meeting. And that can be really problematic in terms of trust and in terms of feedback and voices and making sure that that this really is a, a shared understanding and a shared process. So we have to almost go the extra mile to create more spaces for that to happen right now so that everyone can be on the same page.
1: Yeah. Well said. So we've I think been looking mostly from the faculty point of view and we'll probably continue to to keep that point of view for most of our conversation. But turning the table for a moment and looking at the leadership point of view and those who are in leadership positions who do listen to this podcast, what you, what you call out in the book is that as leaders, they may not realize that they have what you've called these embedded assumptions about success. And so, again, from a leadership standpoint, why is it important for us to recognize these embedded assumptions?
2: It's really at the heart of when we're trying to solve the puzzle of how can we create more in- inclusive spaces, spaces that where we can retain faculty of a variety of race, ethnicity, gender stances without having that space of feeling like you belong and that your voices are heard. It's You, you don't want to stay and you don't feel comfortable putting your, your, your voice out there. So, so part of that is even understanding what what are critical decisions to be made and really understanding what's important around that. In universities, there's usually an expectation that faculty share the governance structures, for example. And as I said in our previous question, a lot of times we've been so busy just trying to make up policy on the fly right now in a crisis that a lot of those shared processes and the time that tends to be taken to make difficult decisions has gotten shortcut. And we're really in a need to re- not just rebuild structures that were there, but even build new ones in this new version of are we in person, are we not in person to make sure that we are having voices heard. Universities also really need to understand the this extensive research on the value of mentoring and collaboration. And mentors take all sort of shapes and sizes. And I talk about this in the book a lot around there are, you know, mentors can be people much more senior or someone just a couple years um, more senior as well. And we tend to need more than one mentor. (laughs) So there are some that are more about giving that confidant space where if you need to close the door and. Share emotions that may not be acceptable in a bigger space—frustration, um, exhaustion, <laughs> those types of things. So, a safe space. That there are other mentors that may not really be good at that emotional side of things, but are have a lot of political power, have a lot of connections, can introduce you to spaces to to grant money to. Um, professional opportunities. So there's the creators and the connectors. And there's also people who can speak on your behalf to recommend you to places. And sometimes there just really isn't a mentoring space within an institution that's a good fit. And that's where hiring an external coach might be what you need as an individual to be able to find that um, neutral, and but yet someone who's surely on your side of things. And universities are also increasingly hiring coaches to provide more of a tailored support mechanism. If you hire a faculty member and you really want them to succeed – you know it's far more affordable to invest in their success than to have them fail enough to start over so taking that time and that those resources to 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 slow down and bring them the connections that they need to understand what they need to do and to feel supported is is really a wise strategy
1: that's so well said thank you for laying that out i think that part of any actionable change include some level of awareness or assessment. So let, let's say that we do have these biases or these like embedded assumptions about success. Are there ways that we can just kind of wake up and, and see, become more aware of where those biases or maybe where those assumptions live?
2: That's the, if, if there was a magic formula for that, I think every university might be willing to do that. Um, There has to be a willingness to to hear and take on difficult Feedback from the university side um, to understand where f- folks are feeling, you know, harmed in some ways, and whether whether it be microaggressions or out, outright feelings of unjustness, and that there is actual processes to help to remedy those. Um, to increase leadership roles for folks who are from a range of experiences is important. So I think there's there's a lot around not just hearing that there's concerns, but but putting people in leadership positions who can help to um, embrace change around that. I think also partly something that universities can do that might be a simpler way to start is to create natural spaces for like-minded folks or folks in similar positions to connect to one another as well. And in the pandemic, we might need to be more intentional about creating spaces for pre-tenured faculty to collaborate, whether it be writing, even just writing their own things, but in a common space, um, even if it's online or in person, and also finding ways to connect to maybe write grants together to meet people from across if it's a large university and other parts of the university, to have places for people of color to have their own spaces to learn from one another that feel safe and and that's supported for LGBTQ faculty to have space to learn from one another. So to put a little bit of money behind some food, some space, some valuing around, it's important to have collaboration of a lot of different kinds to build community. And that is, um, it's almost that's at a crisis level right now of folks not working in isolation and there is no sharing of information. And if you're not, if you didn't have that information before the pandemic, you're probably really lost right now as in most faculty settings, because there just isn't a way to learn it right now.
1: Yeah. So part of this, it, it feels like is to be, again, this word intentional about how you're uh, building community and the investments that you're making in order to facilitate community building and maybe setting up these forums and really embracing not just like peer to mentor, you know, one-to-one, but, you know, peer to many mentors and and helping support faculty in that way. I know a coach can be a a good place to, to help facilitate that. And I think part of this also comes back to the dialogue that you actually are having you know, with, say, the senior administrator who's reviewing your file uh, each semester, uh, each year. Are there ways that, thinking of, of that review process, are there ways that universities can better communicate the expectations that they have of their faculty?
2: This is certainly something that I think most faculty would love to have a broader range of knowledge and understanding about that. Um, I think universities get concerned about saying what expectations are because it can lock them into a certain set of criteria that then um, if there is a conflict around someone being promoted then that that's evidence that could turn into a lawsuit. So I feel that universities are often concerned about being specific because the specificity may come back to harm them. And we really need to get past that and find ways to get real clarity on what kind of work is, is valid and important and important in the process. Um, again, sharing information around that's important, but it also may mean if we're going to hire a broader range of perspectives, we need to value a broader range of work whether it be genres or or types of scholarship, that what we consider to be high quality has to be an inclusive version of what quality means. And also that if there are concerns and process, that there's truly processes by which um, these concerns can be heard. So, mm-hmm. so there's all those different pieces around that. I think also having feedback processes that are more um, broader. So... Not just necessarily one point of contact. If that point of contact's problematic, how does somebody kind of get the mentoring they needed? So, so more of a um, of a team based approach around feedback to colleagues and also clear mechanisms for support for folks who who are are struggling. Mm-hmm. Places that they can get get whether it be coaching or mentoring or Writing support, or you know, connected to faculty members who could help with working on a research team, whatever it might be, that there are processes by which the it's not just you're not meeting expectations, but here are some supports to help you to get there.
1: I see, right? So, not just communicating the expectation more clearly, but then also providing some supplemental professional development or or coaching resources that can help enable that, that growth or help enable the faculty uh, improve on those marks.
2: Can even be as simple as examples, right? Like, and when I think through back to like even the dissertation process, like what does a good dissertation look like? Or what does a good publication look like? And making sense of that by gathering as many examples of other dissertations that my advisor wrote that were viewed as high quality. So How to encourage and, you know, and there's obviously privacy rules, but encouraging faculty to go to other faculty who have had success, who might be willing to share their dossiers, share their strategies Mm. for how they're getting their work done, reading that work, understanding what high quality work is over a set of like examples of people living it is just, you know, a bare bones example. And yet one that isn't often followed around. It's not just here's what a standard is, but here's what a standard looks like in a variety of ways, helps people to truly understand what that means in that university.
1: Yeah. Kind of having case studies or examples built in. That's great. What are are some of the ways you've seen feedback Uh, impact maybe faculty in their uh, professional development, both on the negative as well as like the positive side. Can you think of some examples around that?
2: Yeah. And I would call this feeling agency versus being frozen. So feeling heard on the one hand, that work is understood, um, knowing how to build on what you've done so far as as opposed to feeling torn down so the next steps are concrete but there's also a sense of how to get there there's mentoring and support when they're struggling um, and personalized support. I'm also this is something that's a bigger step than than examples but there's a lot of times where we really do need to slow down, review processes? Why does it always have to be a six-year process, for example, for tenure? um, If we're wanting a certain type of faculty member and there's a lot of, you know, turmoil or things going on, can we give them extra time to be able to get to where they need to be? Not everyone necessarily gets. And can other people move forward quicker? You know, there are some places where it's like you can't, you, you can't go forward for until a certain That time is the the most important thing as opposed to uh, who are the faculty that we want to grow and when are they ready to get there is a different way to be thinking about how to support a broader range of people.
0: And now we're going to take a quick break. Want more of the most important higher ed news, insights and perspectives, but don't have time to look for it? Visit unincorporated.com to subscribe to our Higher Education News Brief, where you'll get the top stories in higher ed delivered straight to your inbox every Monday. And now, back to the discussion.
1: I like this comparison you made between feeling a sense of agency versus feeling frozen, (laughs) and you know again being mindful of that both from the leadership perspective but then also from the faculty perspective and hey am i do i feel like i have agency right now and i do know the path to develop or you know if i'm feeling frozen do i have that set of mentors that i can go to in that safe space that you described in order to kind of express my concerns there's also this uh, this aspect of uh, personalized support and possibly having like personalized timelines, you know, that uh, it's not like a one size fits all, it's actually trajectory for faculty members at different paces. I think the educational system in general has sort of been brushing up against that as a possible solution to like hyper-personalize the student's journey. And so it's cool to hear you talk about it in terms of the faculty's journey as well. Are you able to tie some of these concepts back to, I I can sense how this is really helpful from the faculty perspective, but maybe just in broad strokes, give us a, a sense of how this might help the university grow, whether in its curriculum development or maybe student enrollment or increasing the quality of the students. Like how does this in turn help the business operations of the university?
2: I think it's about faculty support across the developmental lifespan. So there's a lot around retention in those early years. And I work at a university where we work so hard to bring in a diverse faculty, but they may not necessarily stay. So, and I don't see necessarily as much energy being spent on the recruitment side of things as on the, what is the range of supports needed to keep faculty and keep faculty happy and healthy. and As we move into tenure, as we move into mid-career, how do we keep faculty active and engaged and doing interesting work over time and not just sort of half checking out? So finding ways to connect to purpose and values and work that seems meaningful, feeling like one's contribution matters in all parts of of the academy is, is an important part of this. A university is is only as strong as its people. So as we want to keep what's working and we need to keep people happy and productive in order for students to feel inspired, for grants to come in, for service work to be done effectively, there needs to be trust between faculty and administrators. Faculty need to feel like they have a voice and agency and decision-making processes. So, by having more of a, a personalized support structure, it's also h- possible to not just have faculty who want to work to the letter of their job, but are encouraged and enthused to go beyond. So, and that's where the great work of universities happen is when when folks are really happy to work there. So I would say that's a big piece of it and providing spaces and places to do that kind of um, work. And and I, I think another one is, you know, we're, there's such a concern about budgets, obviously, and just the financial structure of universities really changed dramatically in the recession and never fully turned around. And with the pandemic was another huge financial hit and an awareness that, being financially you know as we as you would say penny wise and pound foolish around mm-hmm. what are ways that a little bit of funding and support to build collaborations to provide ways to bring people together actually sparks that informal trust that space to ask questions that space to learn how to collaborate together to encourage innovation so in this space where we're not talking as much and we don't know each other we're not going to invent and and have that innovative space to do the work that could be done we're only going to be doing the work that we're asked to do and not necessarily wholeheartedly
1: yeah yeah i i know that a big part of this equation is to kind of attract new faculty and get like additional thought leadership coming into your university But as you mentioned, budgets are a big concern and, you know, how we're spending each line item is an important aspect to um, kind of, again, the operations behind uh, behind the system. And it must be, maybe you found this in some of the research, it must be cheaper to retain, coach, and engage current faculty than it is to actually go and find, recruit, onboard, and train new faculty. Would you agree with that?
2: Absolutely, and it helps to grow the the culture um, it grow in folks who are happy to be there. It's you know I think of all the emphasis placed on that in, in in tech firms and you know the silicon Valley of of creating really basic working conditions that that help folks to want to work really hard. Um, you know, this is creating containers in which folks work long hours because they feel, valued. They feel welcomed. They feel like it's a space in which they want to be. And that leads to huge productivity gains. That leads to sh- huge increases in output. Um, so so that's just kind of like a basic formula of how all business and leadership literature are talking about. It's just harder to quantify that in an academic space than a space where um, where things more easily turn into dollar signs. But certainly they do turn into revenues in terms of of reputation, grants, student satisfaction and retention, among other things.
1: Mm -hmm. Kind of comes back to this idea that you shared with us on helping faculty to feel a sense of agency and creating some of those processes or the feedback loop or these safe spaces so that they also feel valued and inspired. And of course, that's going to increase productivity and the brand equity, whether you're in higher education or in any other vertical or any other industry. One of the one of the things that stand in the way, I think of maybe feeling super motivated to get out your next paper or do the next body of research, is how you describe this imposter syndrome. And this was cool to actually see a fairly you know, common concept being applied, yet again to higher education, but imposter syndrome from the faculty's perspective could be in the publishing process. Hey, I'm not good enough or in performance, which we've talked about. These, these reviews that they get, maybe they've gone awry or maybe there isn't that kind of direct, open, honest feedback that helps encourage development. So maybe all things you know, kind of set to the side for a moment. If I'm a faculty member and I have this inner critic or this uh, imposter syndrome, how might I take back some of that agency and get out of this stuck pattern that I'm feeling?
2: I'd say majority of my clients are folks who have had a couple bad cycles of trying to publish a paper stacked on top of one another, maybe a bad review. And they've just lost their mojo and lost their sense of feeling like this is something that they can do or that they might even want to do. And so the the common thread between a a really wide-ranging amount of stories is this sense of reconnecting them to who they are and why they're doing this work in the first place. And we don't tend to go into academia to make it rich. (laughs) You know, we're here to, because there's something that we're really passionate about. There's some content that we end up thinking about, you know, no matter if we were to get paid or not, we're passionate about the writing that we do, the research, the discovery, the knowledge. And so it's partly reconnecting people back to what lights them up and what specifically is my, your individual spark or talent that has a certain lens on whatever it is that inspires you that no one else has. And that's why you wanted to do this work in the first place. And a lot of what happens when you get negative feedback is a question as to whether you do have something that is worth contributing. So it's turning that External judgment into internal purpose of remembering that I do have something of value and this is important to me. This is work that I do choose to do. Sometimes it's counseling people out of academia. This isn't, but ninety-nine percent of the time, it's a, it's a remembering of what it is that matters. And then for some, it's helping my clients to um, articulate their work more directly, more clearly, maybe sometimes making their writing stronger, but also just getting clearer on the type of work they want to do versus their feeling they should be doing. And by being able to practice that and articulate that more just in conversations or through um, thinking about a particular set article, it helps them to have a clearer vision of their work, to be able to communicate it better. And to feel more inspired to get back out there and find the places where that contribution is going to be valued. So it really does, again, connect back to that inner sense of agency, belonging, again, of finding different places that might find that work meaningful, and then competencies um, around having the writing skills, the communication skills to market essentially what it is that makes them special. So I call that the ABCs, the agency, the belonging, and then the specific competency skills to get there.
1: Hmm. Oh, nice, nice. Maybe we can unpack that a little bit because I, I like how you frame that up. This uh, this question about, this, this personal question we ask ourselves, you know, why do this in the first place? Or where and how and why does my work have meaning? I think from a mindset standpoint, it's always good to revisit that inner inner question. You know, the inner sense of belonging, as you mentioned, agency and competencies, the ABCs. Mm-hmm. But you know, it it it, uh, it makes me curious a little bit because you're the first person we've had on a show like this that has really talked about the faculty um, kind of dilemma, if you will, and and some of the pitfalls that are sort of inherent in the environment. Uh, what what's your underlying mojo or inspiration to do work like this and to you know put so much time and and resource into the book?
2: Yeah, and I would say that what lights me up is helping people to find a voice and to make a difference. So, a lot of my academic work is with young with youth and helping young people to have student voice or voice in schoolwide settings where. They feel like they're valued and that having that sense of value, that agency, but also a connection makes dramatic differences in their grades and their ability to see their future and believe that they have worth and all those things. And it's not any different for a 12-year-old or a 30-year-old faculty member. We all have these intrinsic basic needs to be seen, to be heard, and we're just so thirsty for connection with others, um, whatever that may be, even if you're the introverted of introverts, you know, you, you can't necessarily find that sense of purpose without touching the lives of other people in some way. And, and then it's just like, what, and then what are the basic skills that are needed to get there that we don't often necessarily teach about, how to communicate and how to make those connections. I think what's different in the current world of not just academia, but all workplace cultures is that we expected the structure and scaffolding to work to solve some of at least the connection and belonging problems of we were Mm -hmm. working in common spaces until a few years ago. And so that piece was kind of built in that we expected the job to do that for us. And now that's not there. Right. And with agency and belonging being so interconnected it can also be harder to find a sense of yourself when you don't have that feedback you're not going to conferences um to be able to share your ideas before they're fully baked or to meet other people from other places in the world that might be doing work that you appreciate and then they appreciate you to give a to give a talk and then have people come up afterwards and 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 say that was great you know that doesn't usually happen as Im- as easily in an online space. So that that right. feedback around why our work might be interesting, that connection in person, we're going to have to work a lot harder as universities to help faculty to make that re- rebuild that structure of how to do that work because it, we've lost a lot of it.
1: Yeah, we have to in some ways innovate and kind of recalibrate those Physical interactions that we have. I think you gave us some good examples of that uh, in the top of the hour here. Is there a fine line between, um, you know, this sense of autonomy or agency comes up a lot, and I'm sure that there's resistance against that. So, where's that fine line between giving faculty members enough agency or autonomy and having them just like go rogue or maybe not follow some of the the guardrails or the basic protocols that are needed in order to keep things equitable or perhaps keep things moving in, you know, a current direction. Where's, where's that fine line? Would you say?
2: I would say that in academia, I mean, a lot of reasons why we're there is we're trading power for freedom and that the idea of scholarship is there's a lot of agency there um, in order to do the work, to be creatives, whatever that might mean to to think new ideas. So on the spectrum of agency, at least from the productivity side of things, there's a lot of space for that. But that's also a danger if we lose track or lose our confidence or our ability to have that self-generating process of, of creativity and innovative thought. So the going off the rails that I would say is more when when we lose that ability to feel like we can create mm-hmm. and because we're not sure if it, there's value in it, that the university is valued or that we have spaces to, to get helpful feedback in order to know how we're doing or finding other people to inspire, I think we're we're suffering from lack of inspiration. that meetings and conferences and things like that can help us to bring or talks mm-hmm. on campus that have happened in the past. So I would say in terms of at least my understanding of off the rails, it's more around how we can keep that spark um, in the flame of of learning and innovation happening. Mm-hmm. I would say maybe from a university perspective, my hunch is that working as administrators and as leaders in, such stressful times where there has to be so many decisions made quickly, there may be a sense of just burnout and exhaustion at the administrative level and a sense of lack of appreciation. But a reminder that there needs to be a shift in terms of of rebuilding around, we've just lost that visibility and transparency in terms of what work is happening and how it's happening. There's not the ability to just drop by someone's office to get clarity on something or see it or to stop in the meeting to to, mm. to see what's happening. Um, so just extra work needing to be done around communication, transparency, trust, so that it is a university and not just a bunch of individual decisions happening is, is, is part of the process around where I see universities kind of falling off the rails in terms of, at being a space that folks want to be working at.
1: Yeah. If I'm a faculty member and you're coaching me mm-hmm. and I feel like I've lost my motivation or gone off the rails as you defined it here, which is to, I've lost the sense that I have this ability to create or this autonomy to create. What's something you would tell me to go and do or something to reflect on? How, how would you help me regain that inspiration or recharge the battery?
2: Yeah, so first I would wanna make sure that you do wanna recharge the battery, that the university is the space that is a good fit for you, that this is a job that can be fulfilling and that it's not, there may be not another path. But if there's a sense that yes, like the academic space is something that I wanna be doing, then we turn more towards what parts of that process are fulfilling to you, what parts are working and where are the parts where you're getting stuck. Is it is it getting things published? Is it what is you know, toxic relationships with supervisors or the feeling that there it's a you know it, it's a discriminatory space or that there's been so much service placed upon someone that they can't do their work um, or there's no place to way to get feedback or understand what what success might look like. So, so kind of narrowing down where the stuck part is. And mm. then from there, it's it's a combination of whether I'm it's coaching, which for me coaching is more pulling out of you what your what it is what's the work that you want to do and how we get there, where and consulting is more of, you know, let's look at your if you're not getting things written, is it is it that we need to help with your writing? Is that is that, that your time management is a mess and you're not actually sitting down and doing the writing. Your work-life balances or you're so stressed because your mother is ill, you know, and trying to suss out, like, what problem is needs to be solved. It's some Often it might be moving to a different university or, you know, it, it, that's also, a, or just getting through a tenure process <laughs> so that then mm-hmm. there's, it feels like there's space then to, to push back against you know, a, a particular administrator or to have more parity of not needing to just say yes to things. So
0: right. so it's
2: kind of like that's where it's a real individualized process for each faculty who might be having not meeting expectations or a staff member of what actually is it that's stopping that person from being a contributing and thriving, thriving, you know, whatever it might be. So learning that first, and then we can think through, is it something I need to help you to grow from inside having agency? Is it that we need to find you collaborators? or is there a set of skills we can work on that that'll help you to get where you need to go?
1: That's great. I, so I love how you started first with, hey, is this a good fit? and then moved into, okay, it seems like it's a good fit, but where are we coming up short? or what challenges are you experiencing currently and and again, personalizing that. That kind of dialogue or coaching and consulting that happens w- without someone like yourself does that happen at like the senior administration level or peer to peer? Like, w- where is that consulting and coaching happening right now?
2: If there's a talented supervisor, so in my my role as a professor where I am, that would be a department head, you know. And I've been fortunate to have leaders ahead of me who really I do feel have my best interests at heart. And I can ask those questions, but I also feel that they're really good at having a real distributed model of leadership to try to have not just that one point of contact, but to encourage conversations with with more senior colleagues, to encourage junior colleagues to have those collaborative features. So I think Again, that gets back to gathering the information needed to be successful and to feeling safe in those spaces that I'm actually wanted here and that my work is valued and that I can ask questions if I need be. So I think in order to do that, there has to be like meetings where I can ask questions or ways that I know I can meet people who may be in other parts of the university and that just, you know, sometimes just a little bit of resources around Encouraging those those initial conversations can help to really grow so that there aren't just one single point of contact. There's a wide range of places where people can ask questions and get support and find and be heard and um, all the things.
1: Yeah, great emphasis there on distributed points of leadership. I think that's a really uh, powerful phrase and, and concept it goes back to how you were describing, you know, not just having one mentor, but multiple mentors and just the importance there. Leveraging it from the leadership perspective, but also leveraging that or, or looking for that from the faculty perspective. Dana, thank you for all of this great guidance you've provided. It's a, it's a lot to think on and you've given us some some key actions that we can take as well. Are there any maybe final words or final coaching and advice that you would like to leave us with?
2: I think it's just important to remember that usually when we're feeling stuck, that kind of like Dorothy of the Wizard of Oz, we have, we've had it with us all the time. We have the answers within us. And if things are feeling wrong or, or something is just not feeling right to trust that as well. And to, to draw on whatever networks you have to help make sense of that, to do that, because, um, it's important to feel right with the job that you have, right with the work that you have. And there are a range of ways to find healthy spaces to do that, whether it be mentoring, whether it be coaching. You have a right to feel like the work that you're doing is safe, it's valued, and that you have some sort of connection.
1: Mm-hmm. And from the department chair or department leadership standpoint, they mm-hmm. should also be looking to help improve their evaluation process and their mentorship process and their faculty development process for for all the reasons you you outlined but making sure that there's some agency both on both sides is what i heard is that correct
2: agency on both sides and i think from a leadership perspective really paying attention to the unique strengths and talents of each person and trying to help them to fulfill roles whether it be service roles or or teaching responsibilities that fit their their gifts, whether they're detail oriented or big picture thinking, or better at curriculum versus mentoring. That um, there's a value to having a wide range of types of people and interests. And I think part of what a leader does is is help to to find opportunities and in ways that they can serve and have a purpose. That work as opposed to you know as opposed to just kind of forcing a square peg in a round hole
1: thank you thank you for your time this uh excellent commitment to this type of work which i think is um it's not few and far between necessarily but there could certainly be more emphasis in this body of work that you're doing so thank you very much for for that commitment and for those of us who want to take an extra step Toward you and and your work, what's the best way to find you?
2: Um, I'm at danamitra.net, so my email's Dana, Dana And If you just Google Dana Mitra, I'm um, easy to find on all the spaces, whether it be the web or or Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. So I look forward to connecting with um, anyone who'd like to take the conversation forward. Thank you for that. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to the higher ed happy hour podcast for more higher ed specific resources, or if you'd like to be a guest on the show, please visit unincorporated.com.